0: So I was thinking the other day, I thought if somebody said to me, Jack, you know, what is, what's your real goal for this community? What is your real goal for the Stello Grove? So we know that we're in the process of changing our name from Lake Effect to Stello Grove. And by the way, you're wondering why I'm sitting down. I, I'm, I'm at that age now where I'm starting to replace body parts. So I'm going to get a new knee in the next, uh, next month or so. So I can't stand that long. So anyway, that's why I'm sitting. I actually kind of like it. It's kind of working out kind of good. It's, it's kind of like it. Anyway, I might just not get that surgery so I can, anyway. But anyway, if somebody said to me, Jack, kind of really what's your purpose? What's what are your vision for the Stella Grove? You know, I would have a lot of answers. Probably the first thing I would do is I would just remind people of what our mission statement is, is that, you know, we desire to be a safe community for people to grow. We want people to be able to come here and feel safe and grow. And we want people also to make sense of their life. And we also want a church and a community where people can discover really who Jesus is. That's just a big goal for any community that we have those three elements that are there. But I would also tell you that one of my key goals for this community, especially as we emerge into next year and kind of big focus that we'll have, is that we desire to be a people who are a non-anxious presence in a culture of high anxiety. That we desire to be people that are known as calm people, that we're non-anxious that we know who our God is, and we have such confidence in Him that we can bring, bring the presence of God into any situation that we go into. I think we all recognize that we live in a pretty anxious culture. I mean, it was one thing that we used to have to deal with the fact that we had issues going on in our own personal lives and our family lives, but suddenly the whole world has gone viral. So in a matter of seconds, you know what everybody else is going through. And a lot of people are experiencing so much anxiety, they really don't even know how to live their own life. People are overwhelmed, and people are looking to be around a person that is calm. There's a very interesting book that was published in 2007 by a man by the name of Edwin Friedman. He was a Jewish rabbi. It was an interesting book because the book was published in 2007, 10 years after he died. He was a famous Jewish rabbi and also a family therapist. And you know you're pretty famous when you can die, and 10 years later, a book is published in your name, and it's consistently been on the best-selling list for the last 15 years. It's an amazing book, and it's called The Failure to Thrive because in that book, he establishes what he thinks is the number one quality of a good leader. And this book really kind of made a big mark into that whole leadership development uh, section of books. Because usually when you think of a good leader, you think of a person that can speak really well, or a person that has the most knowledge, or a person that has a lot of administration skills. But he comes into on scene and he says, no, the greatest quality of a good leader is somebody that's non-anxious, somebody that's calm. Somebody has, has the capacity to go into a tense situation and remain calm because they understand their core beliefs and their core values, and they are not moved or swayed by anybody around them. That, is his, that, that was all his research and all his years of family therapist and being a rabbi. What he came on scene and said the best quality of a leader is a non anxious presence. And so people are reading this book tremendously in the last 15 years, and they come away with three main points. His main point is, number one, you have to know what's important to you, and you have to be able to stick to your beliefs and your values, and you have to know why is that your value. That's number one, to be a calm person. Second thing to do is you have to be so confident in your values that you do not react in a negative or poor way when you get around people who have an extremely different view or beliefs than you do but also you have to learn how to be connected to people even if they have a different view than you. We kind of live in a culture where we have this idea like, okay, I can have a different view from you, but I'm no longer going to be your friend. I'm not going to be around you. But a strong leader has a capacity to know their beliefs and they're so confident they don't react to other people around them if they have a different belief system. And the final quality of a good leader that he said was a person that can be around other people's opinions, and it doesn't bother them. I love this book, and I love this thesis that he comes with because I think it levels the playing field. And quickly we learn that our leadership is not based on your knowledge. It's not based on your capacity to lead. It's not based on your influence. It's based on your ability to have a calm presence. And suddenly we realize how God can make each of us a strong leader because part of his character in us is to be a calming presence in the midst of a chaotic world. And that to me is a big goal for us as a community and goal for us as individuals that would be this non-anxious presence to a culture that is looking for a sense of calm and a sense of security and looking for somebody that has a strong belief system, can defend their beliefs, but also they have the ability to be friends with people that might have a different view than they have. I want to open with this verse from 1 Peter 2 verse 9 because I think this is so strategic of what God is saying to us. He says, you are a chosen people. That's God speaking to every person here. Every man, every woman saying, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he's called you out of the darkness into a wonderful light. That is God's word to each of us. You are a chosen purpose, and you are called for a strategic reason to help people come out of the darkness into the light. So with that said, we are entering into part three of this Christmas series called Everything You Are Looking For Is Right Here. Everything that you're looking for is right here in this manger. She's such a good little kid. She's like, I don't want to miss the sermon today. Thank you, Thea, for coming back. Extra potatoes for you. So my wife came up with this beautiful, beautiful band. Didn't she do a good job? Everything we need is right there, right in the manger. I mean, it's just this beautiful reminder as we come into this Advent season. Everything we need is right here. But yet three weeks ago, I started this series, and I said to us, I think there's one question that we all need to answer. There's one question that I want all of us to ponder this Advent season, and that question is, what does God want to give you for Christmas? what does God want to give you for Christmas? That's a good question for us to consider. I mean, sometimes we quickly think a shirt, you know, a new car, a new house. I'm not talking about those kind of things, even though we probably could use those. But I want us all to consider is what does God want to do in your life right now? Or what is God doing in your life right now that He wants you to participate in the work that He is doing? God's always up to something in our life, and I think now is a good time to say, God, what are you up to? Because I want to be actively engaged in what you're doing. I've talked to many people in our community. I've been wrestling with that question, seeking God, saying, "What, what are you doing in my life? Or God, what do you want to do in my life? It's kind of an exciting thing to think about. And I know some of you have said to me, I don't really know. And I think that's a great place to be as well, because God will still speak to you. But as we're sitting here, we have a series as we lead into this Christmas season. It's to really help us to engage with what God is already doing in our life. See, the core of this series is that God wants to give each of us a gift, a gift that would bring us deep satisfaction, that internally each of us would find extreme satisfaction in what He is doing in our life. That is what we are seeking right now. We're seeking to know that confidence and affirmation that God is busy at work doing something in our life. That's what he wants to give us for Christmas, is that assurance that he is up to something. I think so often in our culture, it's easy to live anxiously. It's easy to live without peace. And God wants to give us that peace that passes our understanding so we can be a presence for him in this world. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of our problems would go away, but what it means is that the presence of God would be so strong in our life that any of the issues that we are dealing with in our life would become small in comparison to what He's doing in our life. So in this series, I'm highlighting two of the gifts that I know that God wants to give us because they're recorded in Scripture. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, Long before God laid the earth's foundation, He had us in mind. He had settled on us to be the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. I mean, God is the ultimate example of a non-anxious presence. And before this world began, he had decided something, that he would show each of us his love. Before we did anything good or before we did anything bad, God made a conscious decision and said, I'm going to pursue these people with my love because I want to transform their life. We can come here with confidence during this season and during this series and saying we know that God wants to make us whole and holy because His Word says it very clearly here. That's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to bring us and continue to bring us on this journey of transformation, this journey of renewal, this journey of taking our trauma in our life and replacing it with freedom, to take bitterness from our life and replace it with forgiveness, to take our stories of isolation and bring us into community. God wants to bring us into his presence so he can satisfy every deep longing that we have. God wants to satisfy every single desire that we have. And why does God want to do all of this? For the simple reason he wants us to understand what it is like to be his sons and his daughters. He wants us to experience what it is like to be his beloved children. And God wants all of us to have our deep longings and needs met. But there's another reason. As we read in 1 Peter, God wants to use us to be his representatives. There are two of the greatest fulfilling things that can happen in your life. There's two things that can happen in your life to give you extreme fulfillment. Number one is when God is meeting your deep desires and longings. There's nothing better when you know that God's meeting those desires. And the second thing that we desire more than anything, or second thing we desire, is when God can use us in a particular way that we can start meeting the needs that other people have that only God can meet. We desire to be used by God in that way to meet some of the core needs that other people have. And that's the journey that God is taking us on. He wants our needs met so we can meet the needs of other people. And that gets exciting because there's nothing better than to actually do the work that God has called us to do to make disciples. I'm going to shift and I'm going to read a quote to you by seminary professor, Chuck DeGroot a Western Theological Seminary. This little quote actually doesn't fit that, this well in my message. I put it in there a couple weeks ago when I was writing this message and I kept wanting to take it out, but I kept feeling that God wanted me to leave it in this message. I think this is going to be a prophetic word to somebody here, or somebody listening online, and maybe one person, and maybe many people here, because every time I want to take this out, God kind of says like keep it in here. Somebody needs to hear this quote. It's also written in your bulletin if you want to take it home. But I think it's a pretty profound quote from a, a seminary professor that teaches a lot of psychology and counseling classes. I'm going to read it because I think somebody here needs to hear it, or maybe multiple people. He says, You are not what's wrong with you. You are not what's wrong with you. Think about it. Some religious traditions begin with the bad news first. You are worse than you think you are. And psychotherapy often begins in search of what's wrong. But you are not your addiction, you are not your worst day sin doesn't tell your whole story nor does your dsm disorder you were declared good and bestowed with dignity and worth you are loved deeply what may be wrong or problematic right now is not what is most true about you and no matter what you're experiencing or done there's a robe there's sandals and a feast and all declaring your deep worth and the stunning reality that your participation in the story wasn't ultimately up to you anyway, but that you are pursued by a love that will not let you go. I think that's just a beautiful quote and a beautiful reminder that you are not what's wrong with you, but you are pursued by a love that will not let you go. I think it's so important that we pause and we remember that quote, that you are not what's wrong with you. You are not your worst day. So often we let that feeling of something's wrong with me become our compass in our life. And we seem to follow that something is wrong with me more than anything else. But that's simply not true. It's not true. So what we do in this time is we focus on the fact that God is pursuing us, that he's pursuing us with his love that he has for us, and he's pursuing others around us with that same love, and he wants to use each of us in a way to meet the needs of other people. We desire to be that influence in other people's lives. We desire to be the disciples of Jesus that make disciples. So as we come into this last series of the year, I can say with confidence and with expectation that God desires to make each of us whole and holy, that God desires to continue to do that work in us that he started years ago, that God desires to bring us into a season that's going to be very fulfilling, that God desires to bring us into a season where we understand and we experience him meeting our deep longings and desires. As I've been saying in the last two uh, messages of this series that we talk about a lot that God has core longings that each of us has. That God's created us with core longings and core desires that things in our lives that have to be met. And if they're not met by God, we're going to find them met in other places that we shouldn't go to. The world of psychology talks about each person has core longings that needs to be met in their life, and it's more of a secular view. But people in Christian psychology, we'll talk about that as well, that we have core things in our life that need to be met, and if they're not met, it makes us very unhealthy. So for this series, I've been talking about seven core longings. I get these from the book by Josh McDowell and Ben Bennett called Free to Thrive. You can read other Christian books, and they'll say there's 12 core desires that we have. Some will say nine, but the point is there's desires that we have that must be met. One of the desires that we have, we talked about this two weeks ago, is acceptance. You need to know that you are accepted by God. Another one is assurance of safety. We have to feel safe and secure in our world. This week we're talking about affirmation of feelings. We need to have our feelings validated even if they're right or wrong. We need people to listen to us and be seen. We also have a need for affection. We have a need to have access to people that will love us. We have a need to have attention. We have a need to be appreciated. These are core longings and desires that we were created with that these must be met in our life. And that's so much the focus of God saying, I will meet these desires that you have. And so often when these desires are not met in a healthy way, it creates the unwanted behavior in our life. We start doing things in our life that simply is wrong because it's a mark that we're trying to get attention or we're trying to get our needs met. It's easy to do. I think a lot of us probably react sometime to eating. We kind of stress eat. Sometimes you get stressed out by events in your life. I think I told you a couple weeks ago, my go-to place when our oldest son is having a seizure. It's halfway through the seizure. He's pulling out of the seizure, and I'm thinking, what am I going to eat? What do I get to have? I had to live through a big seizure. and So what's the reward? Do I get a pizza? And I'm thinking already the Ben and Jerry's ice cream that I'm having. Because you find in these traumatic situations like that, you need care, you need compassion, you need assurance, you need something. Instead of saying, okay, after the seizure, I need to sit with God and say, I need you to minister to me. Not only does Nick go through that, but watching. But Instead, it's like, oh, how can I satisfy that need? That's maybe a silly example, but we do that kind of stuff in our life. When we're looking for acceptance or assurance, we're going to find it in some other place. See, the good news about unwanted behavior in your life, it's just an indication to you that God can meet that need in a way that is healthy. Sometimes our unwanted behavior in our life is no more than a mark from God saying, I can meet that need for you. So today I want to talk about our need for an affirmation of feelings, that we have this legitimate need to have our feelings affirmed and validated, confirmed by other people. We all need that. We need people to listen to us. I need people to tell people, this is what I'm feeling. This is what it's like to be me right now. And I need people to listen to me. But before I talk about that, I want to go to the book of Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah is a fascinating book of the Bible. And it also gives a good theology to understand that God is the one who wants to meet all of our needs. The book of Jeremiah starts out with this famous verse, Jeremiah 2, verse 5, where God says to Jeremiah, and basically God can be saying this to each and every one of you. You could put yourself in Jeremiah's place right now. And God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So this is the introduction of the book of Jeremiah. When God captures Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I got a big plan for your life. I got a big plan for your life that you are going to confront the Israelites and you're going to tell them everything they're doing wrong and you're going to tell them that they have to repent and return back to me. And as you can imagine, Jeremiah is not too excited about this calling that he has in his life because nobody wants to speak to a nation of people and say, hey, you're a bunch of sinners. You're doing a lot of things wrong. So God spends a good deal of the first part of Jeremiah convincing Jeremiah, I'll be with you. I'm going to be next to you. I'll tell you what to say. And he encourages Jeremiah. So then we get to Jeremiah, the second, the, the chapter two, begins with everything that the nation of Israel has done wrong. It says they've rejected God. They followed idols. They become idolaters. They defiled the land. They have rejected God's law. The list could go on and on of all the things the Israelites have done wrong. But then you get to Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and suddenly it's going to summarize the whole first part of Jeremiah, where God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns. You're like, wait a minute. You've listed a bunch of things that the Israelites have done wrong. They've defiled the land. They've done idolatry. They've been seeking other gods, and suddenly now you're saying the hundreds of things they've done wrong, you're boiling it down to two things only. God says everything you've done wrong, the Israelites have done wrong, boils down to two things. Number one, They've rejected God by not looking to God to meet their expectations and their needs and their desires. In other words, they're not satisfied with God, so they're looking other places. And the second thing he says to them, by not looking to me to meet your own needs, you're meeting them on your own. That's kind of fascinating when you think God's going to boil down everything that the Israelites have done wrong into two things. Number one, they're not looking to God to meet their expectations. So number two, they're going to meet them on their own. It's kind of interesting. You'd expect that Jeremiah was going to go with sheets and sheets of paper to tell the Israelites, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, and now his message is to the Israelites, you're not letting God meet your needs, and so you're trying to meet your needs on your own way. See, our sin kind of boils down to pretty simplistic. It's really just a lack of a relationship with God or just thinking that we can meet our needs on our own. See, our sinful behavior is really not that complicated, according to the book of Jeremiah. It's simply not looking to God to meet your needs. I think that's why sometimes Lent can bother me. It might seem like, who can say that in church? Church? Sometimes in Lent, we focus so much on the things that we've done wrong that we forget what Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says. You're doing these things because you're not seeking me to meet your needs. Jared, Lent season is, that's great. You want to talk about things you've done wrong. But at some point, you've got to focus on why you're doing things wrong. And that's because sometimes you forget that God can meet your needs. That's the message of the book of Jeremiah. No, God doesn't have to show you all the list of things you've done wrong. He wants you to understand you're just not looking to Him to meet your needs. And that's why it is so important that we have an understanding of the character of God, an understanding of the character of Jesus, because when you know the character of God and you know the character of Jesus, suddenly you realize that they can meet our needs, that He has a capacity to meet our needs, because there's really no reason to celebrate Advent if you're not convinced that God can meet your needs. There's no reason to celebrate the manger. We celebrate the manger because we know that baby is coming forth that can meet every single one of our needs. So in the book Free to Thrive, the one I referred to earlier by Edwin Freeman, he says that as human beings, we all share the simple desire, I'm sorry, I messed that up, I have two books that have the word thrive in them. The book Free to Thrive by Ben Bennett, he says all of us have this need to have our feelings affirmed. All of us have that desire to have our feelings affirmed. And they need to be affirmed by God, and God occasionally uses people in our life that will help accomplish that for us. So we need our thoughts and our ideas to be affirmed and validated by other people. And what's really hard for us is that sometimes we get scared. We don't like to share with other people what we're thinking. Sometimes we're so, we can get even nervous about our own thoughts. We think, how am I going to even share them with somebody else? But it's critical for us to find acceptance and security in God is if we are able to share our own thoughts and feelings with other people. I like what Kurt Thompson says. He says, to confess is to tell the truth about everything, not least of which what I long for. See, so often the reason we talk about our feelings, what we have, is not just because to get them out, but it helps us understand what do we really desire in our life? What are we really looking for? Because when you understand that desire, then you can understand what God really wants to meet in your life. See, then deep down inside, every one of us has a feeling and a desire that we want to be known. We want to deeply be known. I don't just want you to know my address and know a few little things about me, but we want people to know what it's like to be us, to like to be me. What's it like to live my life? What's it like to have my experiences? What's it like to be in my family? We want people to know that about us. But so often we're scared to let people in. So instead of letting people understand who we are and how we are, we actually sometimes become controlling people. Instead of letting a person understand what it's like to me, we want to control the atmosphere and have, paint a picture for them, what it would be like for me. Or another thing that we do in our culture when we get scared of being known, one hand we would be controlling, another hand is we just like to gather information. We're kind of an information education culture where we think the more knowledge I have, the more books I read, the more wisdom, I can kind of create a shield around myself. And those two things, while they look kind of good, actually can be very destructive in our life. Actually, the seeking a lot of knowledge can actually become a controlling thing we do just to kind of control the narrative of what's going on. But deep down inside, each of us wants to be loved more than anything. We want to be loved. We want to be valued. But you can't do that. You can't experience that love if people don't really know much about you. You can create this pers- whole persona of who you want people to think you are and they might love that character you created but you're never going to experience that love because that's not who you really are. Or if you're so scared to share your feelings with somebody and they show you love, you're not going to experience until you find that you can be honest and transparent and vulnerable with somebody else. That's why this longing to have a feelings affirmed has to happen in our life. You can't ignore this one. God has to meet that need. That's why prayer is so much more than a to-do list or God, give me this, but it's pouring out your heart before God saying, God, this is how I feel. This is what my life is like. This is what makes me scared. This is what makes me nervous. This is what makes me excited. This is what makes me petrified. You have to have that relationship with God where you pouring out your heart to him. That's what the prophet Jeremiah had to do. Jeremiah is actually considered, by human standards, the most unsuccessful prophet in the Old Testament. Why? Because nobody listened to him. The people ignored his advice. He spoke the word of God over and over again, and the Israelites continued to rebel against him. And Jeremiah did not mind telling God about that. He had no problem saying to God, I'm jumping around. had no problem saying to God. I've never joined the people in their merry feast. I sat alone because your hand was on me. I was filled with indignation at their sins. Why then does my suffering continue? That's a good question. I'm your prophet. I'm calling people to uh, what they're doing wrong. I'm living the right life. But why does my suffering continue? Why is my wound so incurable? Your help seems as uncertain as a seasonal brook, like a spring that has gone dry. I love Jeremiah. He dared say that to God. Basically said, I'm miserable. And I'm doing what you called me to do. I love the fact that he had the guts and the courage to stand and say before God, I'm miserable. He had to have his feelings affirmed by God. He had to God, God needed, he had to know that God was listening to him. But see, we also need people in our life that will listen to us. We need to be put in the community of people that are safe so you can share these things with other people. We want other people to listen to us, but so often listening is really supposed to be pretty easy. It's not that hard to listen, but yet I think it's one of the hardest things for some people to do. I boiled it down to three reasons why I think people don't listen very well. Number one is a lot of times people don't listen to understand they listen to respond. Have you ever sat there with somebody and you're telling them a story of what's going on in your life and they, you can tell they're not engaged at all. They're just thinking, what am I going to say back to you? I can say that because I'm guilty of doing that. Somebody's telling me their life situation, why it's hard and why it's difficult, and I'm the pastor, I better say something Jesusy, You know, I better have a scripture or something. <laughs> and so the entire time they're talking, I'm thinking, okay, what scripture can I tell them? With scripture?" I'm not even listening to them. People aren't looking for another verse. They're not always looking for another wisdom advice. They want to know that you're listening to them, that you're hearing them. Another problem that sometimes happens is when you're sharing your story, have you ever been there where you're sharing what's going on with you and you're sharing something deeply emotional and the person seems to hijack the story and just go down this whole story about themselves? You're like, wait a minute. I was just kind of in tears telling you what life is like, and you just, now I got to listen to you. We do that to people. I think another thing that we do that interrupts our ability to listen is that we like to listen to correct people. We think, oh, this is my opportunity. You're going to tell me what's going on in your life, and I'm going to have the quick fix answer. We don't need that either. People want you to listen to them so you can understand their heart. I think sometimes as listeners, our problem is, we think we have to have the answer and the solution, but you know what? You don't have to. God has the answer and the solution. You have the ears, and sometimes we simply can listen to understand a person, to understand their story, to understand what is it like to be that person. That's how we engage with somebody when they're sharing their stories. We say, "What is it like to be that person?" See, I love the fact that Jeremiah poured out his heart to God, that basically he shouted at God. It's like, this isn't fair. I'm doing exactly what you called me to do. My life is a mess. And God says to him, but Jeremiah, and God responds to Jeremiah. He answers him. I think sometimes we believe that, oh, if I'm too honest with God, he's going to get mad and leave. No, God listens. And God says to Jeremiah, look, if you return to me, I'll restore you so you can continue to serve me. If you speak good words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. That was God's word to Jeremiah. He encouraged Jeremiah after Jeremiah poured his heart out to him. He said, Jeremiah, I'll restore you. You're not going to miss out on anything. I know you feel broken. I know you feel like you've been thwarted, but you're not going to miss out on them. Keep speaking what I'm telling you to speak. Keep influencing people. I think that's such a good reminder of Jeremiah. He did not have an easy life. But he was a non-anxious presence in a world filled with sin. Because he knew what God had called him to do. He understood his conviction from God. And he was able to stand firm, even though everybody else was against him. We need to be stayed connected to God. We need to be that non-anxious presence because you look around in our world and things aren't getting any easier. Our voice is becoming more and more silent and we need to be better listeners, but we also need to be people that are pouring out our heart before God so he hears us and we know that he's affirming our feelings. I love the Psalm 77 where it says in verse 1 and 2, I cried out to God, yes, I shout." Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted towards heaven. That's the posture that God wants us to be in, that we have this posture of crying out before God all night long. And even in verse 2, it says, but my soul was not comforted. David was honest to say before God, you know, but I, I, I I didn't receive anything from you. There's times that that does happen. You pray all night long, and you feel like nothing is happening, and the psalmist even acknowledges that would be part of the journey. But Isaiah 55, verse 3, this is the best response. It says, come to me, this is God speaking, come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, and I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. That is what God says to us when we pour out our heart to him. He said, listen to me. Listen to what I am going to tell you. That's just so encouraging that the more you pour out your heart to God, the more he responds and speaks to you. I think we all need that confidence. We all need that assurance that God's listening to us. But it happens when we're talking to God so he responds back to us. And that's the encouragement I want all of us to experience as we are in this day of Advent. Another best way to summarize Advent, it's a time of great expectations. I'm praying that we would have great expectations this time of year, that God would be meeting us with gifts that he wants to give us to make us whole and holy, that we would experience expectation because we know that God is always doing something in our life. And we want to say, God, I want to participate in what you're doing that I want to be actively participating in what you're doing. And one of the things that I know I need is I need my feelings affirmed. So God, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to pour out my heart before you and I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what encourages me, what disappoints me, because I want to get it all on the table with God. I want to sit with God at a table and tell him what it feels like to be me and where I'm frustrated and where I'm happy and where I'm nervous and where I'm positive. Because then he responds. He speaks back. We want God to speak to us just like he said to Jeremiah. You must influence them. Don't let them influence you. That's what God is saying to us. We are his royal priesthood. We are called by God. We are the focus of his love. And he's saying to us, you must influence culture. Don't let them influence you. You must influence culture with the love that God has shown us. We are not going to change this world by argument or politics. We're going to change this world by influencing the world with love and compassion. And God wants to give us that ability this year or increase our ability and capacity. So join me in prayer and then let's, uh, let's sing a song and Greg's going to close us. And then the real part of the service, mashed potatoes and birthday cake, and lemonade, lemonade. because Sam loves lemonade. So God, I thank you for bringing us here today. I thank you that you are a God that is focused on us to be recipients of your love. God, we desire that more than anything else. We want to know what it's like to be loved. We want to experience being deeply loved by you, God, we want to be like Jeremiah, that we would do what you're calling us to do, even if we live in a country where everybody else is looking at us like, you don't make any sense. God, help us to have confidence. Help us to have boldness. Help us to influence culture with love and compassion and kindness. God, I pray that you would influence us so we can influence this world. We love you so much, and we're so grateful for your son. And we're grateful that everything that we need is in that manger. Would you bless us and bless this food and bless our fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.